Chapter Four of Living Alone by Stella Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Forbidden Sandwich. While Sarah Brown's unenviable leisure was spent in acting as slaved committees, she had at the same time a half-time profession, which, when she was well enough to follow it, brought twenty shillings a week to her pocket. She was in the habit of sitting every morning in a small office collecting evidence from charitable spies about the naughty poor, and after wrapping the evidence in mysterious ciphers, writing it down very beautifully upon little cards, so that the next spy might have the benefit of all his forerunner's experience. Sarah Brown never thought about the theory of this work, because the different coloured inks and the beautiful writing pleased her so. There are people to whom a ream of virgin paper is an inspiration, who find the first sharpening of a pencil the most lovable of all labours, who see something almost holy in the dedication of green and red penholders to their appropriate inks, in whose ears and before whose eyes the alphabet is like a poem or a prayer. Touch on stationery, and you touched an insane spot in Sarah Brown's mind. A dream of a perfect old age was staged in a stationer's shop, in a quiet brown street. There she would spend twilight days in stroking thick blotting-paper, in drawing dogs, all looking one way, with new pen-nibs, in giving advice in a hushed voice to connoisseur customers, who should come to buy a diary or a book-plate or a fountain-pen, with the same reverence as they now show who come to buy old wine. Therefore Sarah Brown's hand had found ideal employment on a charity register. As for her mind, it usually shut its eye during office hours. Her dog David liked the work too, as the hearth-rug was a comfortable one, and Charity, though it may suffer long in other directions, is rather particular about its firing. On the Monday after her change of home, Sarah Brown found that the glory had gone out of the varied inks, and even a new consignment of index-cards, exquisitely unspotted from the world, failed to arouse her enthusiasm. This was partly because the first name in the index that she looked up was that of Watkins, Thelma Bennett, single, machinist. The ciphers informed the initiated that Watkins had called on the War Association to ask for help and advice, see full report. Sarah Brown felt sad and clumsy, and made two blots, one in green on the Watkins card, and the other in ordinary Stevens colour on the card of one Tonk, chocolate-box maker, single to whom a certain charity was obstinately giving a half-pint of milk daily, regardless of the fact that last month she had received a shilling's worth of groceries from the parish. The air of that office rang with the name of Tonk that morning. Hardly had the illustrious Sarah Brown finished turning the blot upon her card into the silhouette of a dromedary by a few ingenious strokes of the pen, when the lady representing the obstinate charity came in, her lips shaped to the word Tonk. "'Tonk,' she said, "'late of Mud Street. She has changed her address. I am the Guild of Happy Hearts. She still comes to fetch her half-pint of milk daily, and only yesterday I learned from a neighbour that she had left Mud Street three weeks ago. It really is disgraceful the way these poor people conceal important facts from us. Have you her new address?' "'Our last address for Tonk was Twelve Mud Street,' answered Sarah Brown coldly but we have already notified you three times that the woman is not entitled to milk from the happy hearts, as she has been having parish relief, as well as an allotment. 
Tonk is—' "'Hm—hm,' hmm, said the happy heart delicately in an undertone, so that the blushing masculine ear of the dog David might be spared. "'After baby week, you know, we feel bound to help all—hm—hm—women as far as we can, regardless of other considerations.' "'Really, you oughtn't to. Tonk is posing as a single chocolate-box maker.' Sarah Brown was rapidly becoming exasperated with everybody concerned, but not least with the evidently camouflaging Tonk. "'She has a soldier at the front,' said the happy heart. "'I am sorry to say that she will not promise to marry him even if he does come home, but even so—' Sarah Brown wrote down on Miss Tonk's card the small purple cipher that stood for hm-hm. "'I will make inquiries about her address,' she said but that was not the last of Tonk. Presently the red face of the relieving officer loomed over the index. "'In the case of Plummet,' he began loudly. "'In the case of Tonk,' interrupted Sarah Brown, to whom, in her present mood, Plummet could only have been a last straw. She hated the relieving officer unjustly, because he knew she was deaf and raised his voice, with the best intentions, to such a degree that the case-papers on the index were occasionally blown away. "'We have already notified you three times that Tonk is having a half-pint of milk daily from the Happy Hearts, as well as an allotment from a soldier.' "'We stopped the groceries,' roared the relieving officer. "'But in the case of Plummet—' "'In the case of Tonk,' persisted Sarah Brown. "'She has moved from Mud Street. Can you tell me her last address?' She is living in a sort of private charitable institution, somewhere on the outskirts of the district—Mitten Island, I fancy. I don't know the exact address, because we have stopped the groceries, she paying no rent now. In the case of Plummet, I thought you might be interested to know that she got a month this morning for assaulting the sanitary inspector—pulling his nose, I hear. She told the magistrate it struck her as being a useless nose if it didn't notice anything wrong with her drains. The children came into the house this morning. "'What is Tonk's Christian name?' asked Sarah Brown, who had been a changed woman since Mitten Island was mentioned. "'I forget. Some flower name, I think. Probably Lily or Ivy. In the case of McClubbin, the woman is said to have fallen through a hole in the floor of the room she and her three children slept in. She was admitted into the infirmary last night, and her furniture will be sold to pay her rent.' "'It begins with P,' said Sarah Brown. P. Tonk, unmarried wife of Mitten Island. The relieving officer went away, for it was dinner-time. Sarah Brown absently unwrapped the little dinner, which she had brought hanging by a thin string from a strangled finger. Mustard sandwiches, with just a flavouring of ham, and a painfully orthodox 1918 model bun made of stubble. Sarah Brown almost always forgot the necessity of food, until she was irrevocably in the bus on her way to work but this morning, as she had taken her seat with David in the bouncing ferry-boat, there had been a panting, rustling noise behind her, and Harold the broomstick had swept a little packet of sandwiches into her lap. He had disappeared before she had been able to do more than turn over in her mind the question of whether or no broomsticks ever expect to be tipped. Now, I could not say with certainty whether the witch, in making up this packet of sandwiches, had included the contents of one of her own little packets of magic. Sarah Brown would have been very susceptible to such a drug. Her mind was always on the brink of innocent intoxication. 
Perhaps she was only half a woman, so that half a joy could make her heart reel and sing, and half a sorrow break it. She was defenceless against impressions, and too many impressions make the heart very tired. Therefore, I think, she was a predestined victim of magic, and it seems unlikely that the witch should have missed such an opportunity to dispense spells. After the first bite at the first sandwich, Sarah Brown was conscious of a joke somewhere. This feeling in itself was akin to delirium, for there are no two facts so remote as a joke and a charity society. The office table confronted Sarah Brown, and she wondered that she could ever have seen it as anything but a butt. She wondered how she had been able to sit daily in front of that stout and earnest index, without poking it in the ribs and making a fool of it. The office clock, alone among clocks, had never played a practical joke. The sad fire below it, conscious of a mission, was overloaded with coal and responsibility. The second bite, ten minutes later, caused Sarah Brown to be tired and distrustful of a room that had no smile. Her eyes turned to seek the hidden joke beyond the limits of that lamentable room. There was a spring-coloured tree in the school-ground opposite, and above the tree a rough blue and silver sky contradicted all the doctrines preached in offices. There was in the wind something of the old raw simplicity and mirth that always haunts the sea, and penetrates inland only on rare spring days. The high white clouds crossed the sky like galleons, like old stories out of the innocent Eden-like past of the sea, before she learnt the ways of steam and secret killing. Old names of ships came to Sarah Brown's mind, Castle of Comfort, Cloud of the Sun. "'I am doing wrong,' said Sarah Brown. She took a third bite. And then she felt the spirit of the naughty poor in the room. There was laughter, as of the registered, in the ears of the registrar. It is not really permissible for the naughty poor to invade offices which exist to do them good. The way of charity lies through suspicion, but the suspicion of course must all be on one side. We have to judge the criminal unheard, if we called him as a witness in his case we might become sentimental. The charity society may be imagined as keeping two lists of crimes, a short one for registrars and workers, and a very long one for the registered. High on the list of crimes possible to registrars and workers is sentimentality. It is sentimental to feel personal affection for a case, or to give a child of the naughty poor a penny without full inquiry, or to say, agoo, to a grey pensive baby eating dirt on the pavement, or to acknowledge the right of a case to ask questions sometimes instead of answering them, or to disapprove of spying and tale-bearing or to believe any statement made by any one without an assured income, or to quote any part of the New Testament, or in fact to confuse in any way the ideas of charity and love. Christ, who, by the way, unfortunately omitted to join any reputable philanthropic society, commanded seekers of salvation to be poor and to despise themselves. But this was sentimental and the charity society decrees that only the prosperous and the self-respectful shall deserve a hearing. "'I am sentimental,' said Sarah Brown to her dog David, in a broken voice. She turned again to her enchanted sandwich. There was increased laughter in the air, 
and through it she heard the hoarse and happy shouting of the sparrows in the spring-coloured tree opposite. Sparrows are the ideal naughty poor, the begging friars, the gypsies of the air. They claim arms as a right and as a seal of friendship. With their mouths full of your crumbs they share with you their innocent and vulgar wit. They give you in return no I.O.U., and no particulars for your case-paper. When they have got from you all that you will give, they wink and giggle and shake the dust of your window-sill from off their feet. Sarah Brown opened the office window, and the air of the office began at once to dance with life and the noise of children and birds. She thought perhaps these were magic noises, for she heard them so clearly. She broke her second sandwich upon the window-sill, and the sparrows crossed the street and stood on the area railing in a row below her, all speaking at once in an effort to convey to her the fact that a retreat on her part would be tactful. The sparrow obviously buys all his clothes ready-made, probably at jumble sales, and he always seems to choose clothes made for a stouter bird. There is no reason why he should never look chic. He has a slimmer figure than the bullfinch, for instance, who always manages to look so well tailored. It is just arrogance, pure Londonism, on the part of the sparrow, just that impudent socialist spirit which makes it so difficult for us to reform the naughty poor. Sarah Brown retreated one step. "'I'm not going farther away. Either you eat that sandwich with me looking on, or you leave it.' The sparrows whispered together for a moment, saying to each other, "'You go first. They obviously knew that it was a charity window-sill, and were afraid Sarah Brown might intend to rebuke them for not shutting their beaks while chewing, or for neglecting to put any crumbs into the savings-bank. But, after a minute, one sparrow moistened his beak and came. He ate. They all ate, and did not seek to escape as the door of the office opened and the witch came in. She went straight to the window, and picked up from among the stooping sparrows a piece of the broken sandwich, and ate it. The dog David was making sure that there was no surviving crumb on the floor to tell the tale of his mother's sentimental weakness. Almost instantly, therefore, that sandwich was but a memory, a fading taste in about twenty beaks and two mouths. But still the window stood open, and the air danced, and the white reflections of the ship-like clouds lay on the oilcloth floor. Sarah Brown, in the meanwhile, disregarding the witch, had returned to the index, and had taken from its drawer a notification form. In the space given for name of case, she had written in her irreproachable printing hand, "'Charity. Cautionary case. Twelve Pan Street, Brownborough. With reference to the above case, I have to report that it seems unsatisfactory. There are indeed grave suspicions that the above name is only an alias, the address being also probably false, for the genuine charity's place of origin is said to be the home rather than the office. The present registrar is at a loss to identify with certainty this case. It would seem to be one of the habits that haunt the world, collecting kudos under assumed names." "'It puzzles me,' said the witch, looking out of the window, "'why one never sees two birds collide. If there were as many witches in the air as there are birds, I bet you tuppence there would be constant accidents. Do you think they have any sort of a rule of the road, or do they indicate with their beaks?" "'Which?' said Sarah Brown. "'I have got to say something.' "'Oh, have you?' said the witch, 
a little disappointed at being interrupted. "'Oh, well, I can sympathise. I know what that feels like. Get on and say it.' The dog David, who was really a good and attentive son to Sarah Brown, came and laid his chin, with an exaggerated look of interest, on her kneecap. "'Is it any use?' said Sarah Brown. "'Fighting against the habits in the world, there are so many. Who set these strange and senseless deceivers at large? Religion which has forgotten ecstasy, law which has forgotten justice, charity which has forgotten love. Surely magic has suffered at the stake for saner ideals than these. Why, of course, said the witch impatiently. Magic generally suffered because it was so sane. I thought everybody knew that. All habits, all habits, chanted Sarah Brown. What is this charity, this clinking of money between strangers? And when did charity cease to be a comforting and secret thing between one friend and another? Does love make her voice heard through a committee? Does love employ an almoner to convey her message to her neighbour? Not that I know of, sighed the witch. Sarah Brown, how long do you want me to keep quiet while you say things that everybody surely knows? But Sarah Brown went on. The real love knows her neighbour face to face, and laughs with him and weeps with him, and eats and drinks with him, so that at last, when his black day dawns, she may share with him, not what she can spare, but all that she has." The dog David grunted a little, by way of rather dubious applause. Sarah Brown, with her own voice printed loud and stark upon the retina of her hearing, felt a little abashed. But presently she added in a whisper, "'Listen, I am a spy. I am a lover of specially recommended neighbours only. I am here to help to give the black-cloud tyranny a rather dirty silver lining. I am the false steward in the interest of the superfluously comfortable. My masters sit upon the King's Highway, taking toll in bitterness and humiliation from every traveller along that road. For surely comfort is every man's heritage. Surely the happy years should come to every man, not doled out, not meanly dependent on his moral orthodoxy, but as his right. The fat philanthropist is a debtor, but he behaves like a creditor. He distributes obligations with his gold, yet he has no right to the gold he gives. He makes his brother beg upon his knees for the life and the health and the dear opportunity that should have been that brother's birthright. "'You are possessed, dear Sarah Brown,' said the witch. "'Don't be frightened, it will soon pass off. I knew a girl who had an attack very much like this. While she was under its influence she made up a psalm pretty nearly as good as one of David's. Her mother was much alarmed about her. But she recovered quite quickly, except that she left her job as typist in a mind-improving institute, and went to sea as a stewardess." Sarah Brown talked on, louder and louder. "'Too long I have been a servant in the house of this stranger, this greedy charity. Too long have I sat, a silly proxy for the too fortunate, in this narrow stiff-backed judgment-seat from ten till three daily. There is love and April outside the window, there is too much wind and laughter outside to allow of the forming of habits. I have seen love and the spring only through the glass of a charity office window. The rude voices of children and sparrows and other inheritors of opportunity have been dulled for me by grey panes. 
the white ships, castle of comfort, cloud of the sun, have sailed into port from the open sky without a cargo for me. Good God! said Sarah Brown, pushing David from her. What has happened to me? I have become sentimental. The room seemed to her wild imagination to be full of the spirits of parsons and social workers with flaming swords, pointing at the door. "'Well, that's the end of that job,' said the witch. "'I tell you what, let's go and sit on the swing-leg seat on the heath. The air there and the look of Harrow Church steeple'll do you good.' "'I am damned! I am a cautionary case!' cried Sarah Brown and she slunk behind the witch through the frowning gate of her Eden of fair inks and smooth white surfaces. She had shared with David the remains of her sandwich of knowledge. She had left on the table her puny paper defiance. David, except that he had required but little temptation, had played Adam's part very creditably in the affair. For him Eden had been a soft, warm place, and he was anxious to blame somebody—the woman for choice for the loss of his comfort. He followed her out into the cold, to become, as you shall hear, like Adam, a tiller of the soil. End of chapter 4